content warning. This episode of Red Leg Revolution discusses sex in deep detail. Some of the content contained in this episode may be disturbing for victims of sexual violence. Please proceed accordingly. Let's talk about sex, baby. Let's talk about you and me. That is literally the only line I remember out of that song. So I guess the best part of doing a podcast is throwing in random couplets of songs from like the 90s that I only vaguely remember but are perfect for segueing into this episode. You're listening to Red Leg Revolution, a show about community. I'm Condom Dubs. I I, I hope you guys pick up on the fact that I change the C and C dubs all the time. Regardless, this is a show about community. I'm your host. And today, if you haven't figured it out already by the content warning or the opening bit, we are going to talk about sex. That's right, sex. We, most of us enjoy doing it, some of us don't, but how do we do it? How do we do it healthfully? How do we do it in a way that helps our community and doesn't hurt our community? Because sex is something that is here. We all do it, it's one of our most primal drives, the drive to mate. On that subject, it bears mentioning because a lot of more right-wing religious people will say sex is for procreation, and that's not the case. If there was a higher being who created us and intended for our act of mating to be strictly for mating purposes, then women would go into heat, um, there would be other indications such as it not being so pleasurable and enjoyable, So sex is something that we all do, and again, a lot of us enjoy, and it's important to know how we can do that in such a way that we can improve our community rather than using our own selfish sexual desires to break solidarity among people. And unfortunately, I see that a lot in the left, particularly, and this isn't to dog on the left Let's be honest, the right wing is probably not as promiscuous and sex positive as those of us on the left. And so there's a lot of sexual issues and imbalances and such within activism spheres on the left. And part of that, like I said, is just the cultures that we exist in. And a larger part is a lot of males particularly within the activist scene, who don't apply their theory and their practice to the bedroom like they do in the streets. We might get more into that. We might not. I didn't write a script, a full script for this episode. I did have a lot of points of reference that I wanted to get into it, so I'm kind of like freeballing my parts, and at the same time, I do have some research up for this episode. Due to that, this is another one that will not have video up for it on the Patreon because I'm needing my stuff to do my research. So, that being said, side note, next time I get enough money in my Anchor ad revenue, I think I'm going to go ahead and invest in a cheap webcam because apparently I need it and maybe at that point I will start doing the occasional regular video for for my weekly podcast as well as continuing to do videos for patrons. So I think that gives us a pretty good like idea of what we're getting into today. So let's go ahead and jump into my notes here and what we have going. So first off, sexual attraction. I am very appreciative that I live in 2023. There's a lot of issues with the world today. I think we can all agree on that. But one thing that I do really appreciate is our understanding of gender and sexuality and how there are different types, different categories one can slate themselves in based on who they find attractive, if anybody. Because our ace comrades don't really find anybody particularly sexually attractive. And if you didn't know, ace stands for asexual people who do not feel strong sexual urges that they would like to act upon. 
So some other types of sexual attraction that I think we're all pretty familiar with is, you know, straight, gay, lesbian, and what that indicates when one is attracted to somebody of either the same or opposite sex. But we get a bit more in-depth as we're getting into the new Roaring Twenties, and we have a better understanding of sexual attraction and who we find attractive and why. And part of that is understanding things like pansexuals or bisexuals. From what I understand, I honestly may be a little off on this because it, honestly, some of it seems to be confusing and redundant. But, and I'm not talking shit, like, however people want to describe themselves. I'm just saying it. I'm not as up-to-date on these terms as I would like to be. But from what I understand, pansexual is you're not attracted to somebody based on their gender. You're attracted based on their character, their personality. So gender really doesn't factor into it. Another one that I feel needs to be addressed is bisexual because I technically am bisexual. And I grew up thinking and being told the bisexual meant that the bi was men and women. Because in the culture that I grew up in, we didn't really acknowledge any other gender besides man and woman. And so I tend to shy away from that particular descriptor myself because I have all those burdens of thought that I grew up with because I'm I'm not attracted to men. I'm not attracted to mask-looking folk. Honestly, I do not find penises attractive at all. And that's okay. Like, that's, that's my preference. But at the same time, I've met a lot of non-binary folk, and I have a lot of non- non-binary comrades who I am incredibly attracted to. And it was last year that it finally dawned on me that <clears throat> even though I'm not attracted to male genitalia, if I truly wanted to support my NB comrades and view them as a different gender than the binary we utilize of men and women, then guess what? I, I must be bi. I'm attracted to women and I'm attracted to NB people and that is a whole different whole different type of se- uh, or type of gender. And so as an act of solidarity, at first, I started to identify myself as queer. And that seems to be what I generally go through. It's for me putting my money where my mouth is. If I truly support my NB comrades as a different gender than men and women, and I am attracted to them, then I am at least queer. And I'm also bi because there are two genders that I am attracted to. But that was kind of a hurdle to get over because of the baggage that we have with bisexuality. And along those same lines, talking about bisexuality, it's very important to remember that bisexual people are not a myth, right? Bisexual people are attracted to two genders or more, and it is not... Like, it's not a way station on the way to gay or straight. It's not a temporary thing. It's like every other sexuality. It is it is who we are and how we feel. And I feel like, or I've been told, not so much because I haven't, again, identified as part of that community for very long, but a lot of my bisexual friends have mentioned things like bi erasure and the idea that you know, there is no bisexuality, you're just kind of dipping your toes in the water and you'll eventually decide one way or another and forget about it when it comes to bi-representation on or in media. The only major character that really pops to my head, not to say that there aren't others out there, but mainstream character that pops to my head are the and this is partially because I'm rewatching Game of Thrones, but the Martells from Game of Thrones, well, Oberyn Martell and then his paramour, Ilaria Sand, are both bisexual. And there's some great lines in there regarding bisexuality. At one point, Oberyn is facing off with a, a 
gay male who's like, oh, you like them both equally. And he's like, yep. And the other dude's like, oh, come on, you got to have a preference. Everybody's got a preference. And Oberyn's like, well, half the world, or people are missing out on half the world. That's their call. So there's not a lot of representation of, or good representation of bi people in the media. And what is there, I don't think really gives it the full, like, understanding and knowledge of bi culture, so to speak, as it's all often presented as, again, a way station on their way to being, figuring out you're gay or straight. And that's definitely not the case. So there are a lot of other different types of classifications for sexuality. And personally, I don't think it's super important for any of us to necessarily identify one way or another, because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. It's nobody's business, but mine and the partners I engage with. So, so we're starting off there. Just, I don't think we need to go into the Merriam-Webster definitions of sex and all that. I think we're all kind of on the same page regarding those type of terminology. So I just want to throw that out there, and it seemed like a pretty good way to open up this particular episode. Side note about this episode, I originally conceptualized it as a similar kind of spiel that I gave my 15-year-old when I had to have the talk with him. And we're going to talk a little bit about the best ways to go about that at the end, because everything we're going to talk about before then is going to lead up to how to effectively talk about sex and sexual health with the younger generation, because I know a lot of people have a hard time doing that. And that's internalized religious trauma, that's internalized societal issues. So understanding these things definitely will help in the long run about describing them to our offspring to make sure that they are in fact practicing safe, healthy sex. So speaking of safe, healthy sex, let's talk about sexual health. Let's talk about how important it is to regularly get tested. So we all know what STIs are, sexually transmitted infections. They used to be STDs when I was a kid, but I think we determined that not everything transmitted sexually is a disease, and some of it are just basic infections, which are medically different from a quote-unquote disease. So I think we all know how important it is to make sure that we're getting tested if we're sexually active, particularly if we're sexually active and don't engage using condoms or protection. Birth control is a whole nother thing. Honestly, I'm surprised I didn't put it in my notes, but birth control doesn't protect from STIs. So the best way to do that if you're going to engage is to utilize a condom. But I totally understand if you're in a particular type of bond with your partner or if that's not not within your your game plan, so to speak, that you've consented to with your partner, then, you know, you do you. But if you do, it's incredibly important to not only get tested, but to get it done after you've engaged with any new partner. That's how we can protect our community. And that is the first thing. Well, I guess the second. The first thing to sexual health of a community is... <clears throat> going to be acknowledging the different types of sexuality and appreciating them and allowing people to do what they want between consenting adults. The second part of a healthy sexual community is naturally us all maintaining our sexual health and making efforts to not potentially spread infections or diseases. And in order to do that, we have to get tested and we have to do it at a regular basis. Full disclosure, I'm due for one. I haven't had any new partners to where I am particularly worried since my last one, but at the same time, it's been a while, and it's it's better to know than to not know, right? And the reason why it's better to know than not know is illustrated by the Center for Disease Control. So, from the CDC website, an article titled, New Data Suggests STDs Continue to Increase During First Year of the COVID-19 Pandemic. 
an article that was published on April 12, 2021. Quote, The newly released 2020 STD surveillance report found that at the end of 2020, reported cases of gonorrhea and primary and second... Okay, hold on. I gotta zoom this damn thing in. The... I'm using my computer to read the script, and that was way too weird. So let's try this one more time. Quote, The newly released 2020 STD surveillance report found that at the end of 2020, reported cases of gonorrhea and primary and secondary syphilis were up 10% and 7% respectively, compared to 2019. Syphilis among newborns, i.e. congenital syphilis, also increased, with reported cases up nearly 15% from 2019 and 235% from 2016. Jesus Christ. Early data indicates primary and secondary syphilis and congenital syphilis cases continue to increase in 2021 as well. Reported cases of chlamydia declined 13% from 2019. So we can see from those numbers, end quote, if you didn't figure that out, we can see from those numbers just during the first year of the pandemic that STIs are on the rise. Big surprise. I see with my eyes. I have thighs. Okay, I'm done now. <laughs> so it, it really illustrates to me personally how important it is that to not only protect myself, but to protect my lovers, my partners, and the greater community at large, particularly because I am polyamorous. I have to I have to stay up to date on my testing and my sexual health, and I really wish that we all do the same, just so that, so that we can do what we need to do to protect our community. So that's going to be the, you know, first thing that we can do. So you know what else will help you protect your sexual health? I don't know. That, that doesn't seem fair. Uh, yeah. I don't have a good segue. We are going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we are going to talk a bit more about, well, sex, because let's talk about sex, baby. Let's talk about you and me. Yeah, I'm probably going to sing that another three or four times before the episode's over. Just deal with it. Anyway, here's ads. I just got my hours cut again? How can I pay my bills? Yeah, it sucks, especially since they only pay us minimum wage. But what can we do? Solidarity Man. That's right, fellow workers. It is I, Solidarity Man, champion of the working class. And it sounds like you need a union. A union? That's right. What power on earth is weaker than the feeble strength of one? So a union makes us strong? That's right. Alone, you can do little to change your situation. But together, you can move mountains. And the industrial workers of the world are here to help. Huh? The IWW is a union for all workers, no matter the trade, job, or career. And we want to organize your workplace. Wow. Where can we find the IWW? In your hometown. The IWW has branches all over the world. Check out IWW.org to find your local membership board or join as an at-large member and start your own chapter. After all, our greatest superpower is working together. I must go. I hear another exploited worker calling for help. But remember, the working class and the employing class have nothing in common. Away! Hey, capitalism sucks, but Revolution Records, Kansas City's old school record and bookstore, is part of my community. When I'm in Kansas City and need a book or a copy of a local band's album, I go to Revolution Records. Revolution has a great selection of posters, books, records, tapes, and zines. Plus, they repair music and sound gear. That's pretty dope. Most importantly, Revolution Records is part of the community beyond being a small business. The staff does a great job maintaining an inclusive, accepting, and respectful atmosphere, and they also are active in making Kansas City a better place. Community fundraisers, workshops, events, and meetings all have taken place at Revolution Records, and that's just the stuff I was involved in. So the next time you need a new record to spin or your speaker breaks, go check out Revolution Records, located 1830 Locust Street, Kansas City, Missouri, or at RevolutionRecordsKC.com. Deep in the swamps of Florida. Honey, is that a new plant? He dwells, waiting. Where did those seeds come from, honey? Silently. Oh my god, what is that thing? 
Sending seeds and stickers across the country. Ah! And spreading solidarity. Have you lost your mind, honey? We can't move to a sustainable commune in upstate New York. What's wrong with you lately? There's no stopping him. The Mighty Skunk Ape is on Facebook, and he's on a mission. Anarchy! No! Coming to a post office box near you, the Skunk Ape Liberation Union. There's one. Ha ha ha. Okay, I'm done now. Let's get back to the important stuff. So, another thing that we need to do to make sure that we are having healthy engagements with our partners and our greater community, and this is a big one. When I talked to my kid about this, I really, really hyped up this because it's important. And I think, again, in 2023, I appreciate that we seem to have a better understanding of this particular subject, which is consent. Okay, um, we're going to talk a little bit more about it later. I feel like now's a good time to mention very quickly that I am a victim of sexual assault. I have no desire to go into what happened to me as a child. And I just want my listeners to know that I am in therapy and have been in therapy over a year now, particularly to deal with the issues that came from that assault. And yeah, I just think I needed to preamble the consent thing with that because obviously I was a child and was not able to consent. So what is consent? Well, as usual, our buddies at Planned Parenthood, they've got our back. So from the Planned Parenthood website, quote, Consent means actively agreeing to be sexual with someone. Consent lets someone know that sex is wanted. Sexual activity without consent is rape or sexual assault. What is consent? Sexual consent is an agreement to participate in a sexual activity. Before being sexual with someone, you need to know if they want to be sexual with you too. It's also important to be honest with your partner about what you want and what you don't want. Consenting and asking for consent are all about setting your personal boundaries and respecting those of your partner, and checking in if things aren't clear. Both people must agree to sex every single time for it to be consensual. So that article's pretty damn informative and goes on a bit more. That was all I felt needed to be to kind of sum up what consent is. But the best way to realize whether or not you're asking or giving consent is to understand what goes into true consent. And in order to do that, I don't know if it was uh, Planned Parenthood or if it was someone else, but the some group made up the FRIES acronym, and FRIES like French FRIES, F-R-I-E-S, and it makes it really easy to remember what are the components of consent. So, we're going to go ahead and go over those so that we all understand what true consent is and how it works. So, FRI stands for F, freely given. Consenting is a choice you make without pressure, manipulation, or under the influence of drugs or alcohol. So, I am going to intersperse some examples here. So, obviously, you can't consent if you're inebriated. You can't consent if you're passed out. You cannot consent if you are a child and do not have the ability and maturity to consent to a sexual act. Uh, Consent can also be or needs to be free of manipulation. This is something that happens a lot. Men do a lot to women to guilt them into sex and such. It also happens in the reverse. I have been manipulated into having sexual relations that I did not want or was not ready for. And luckily it was with partners 
who I'd already engaged with, so it wasn't as traumatizing as the potential opposite. But at the end of the day, I would have rather not had sex, but I did because it was easier to just have sex than deal with the fallout that would come from me utilizing my ability to say no. So it has to be freely given. Next, it has to be reversible. Anyone can change their mind about what they're feeling like doing at any point, even if you've done it before, and even if you're both naked and in bed. Okay, next page, I had to check. So consent is, again, reversible. Just because you give consent at the beginning of a engagement does not mean that that just lasts forever. You have every right to stop what's going on and should be made to feel safe to do so. I actually run into that a lot, both on my end and with some partners I've been with because we all have come from places of sexual trauma and there's been more than one occasion where I've been getting down for sexy fun time and had the consent revoked and the the only thing I could do is stop, give them the space that they need or require, comfort, safety, make them understand that I understand that they're revoking their consent and I'm not upset about it. I'm still here for them. So consent can be reversible or it should be reversible. Consent should also be informed. So you can only consent to something if you have the full story. For example, if someone says they'll use a condom and then they don't, that isn't consent. So it's important to know your own needs and wants and how you can communicate that so that you're informed, so your partner is informed, and vice versa. Because again, something like quote-unquote stealthing, which is the example that they just used, saying you'll use a condom and then not, that, that's rape. That is violating the consent of the sexual encounter and putting a bunch of risk onto your partner that they did not agree to. So, yeah, don't do that and, you know, be informed with your partner. So also, consent is enthusiastic. When it comes to sex, you should try, you should only do stuff that you want to do, not things that you feel like you're expected to do. This is another one where I think we kind of as a society have, are still working toward a better understanding of, because I've, you know, heard about and been in situations where people say yes, again, to avoid maybe, maybe they don't know what they want, right? Maybe they do. Maybe they are doing it just because they know you want to do it. So that's, you, you have to make sure that they really want it, right? And if it's something that's kind of iffy, that's where you need to be constantly checking for consent, right? And so the last letter in Fry's stands for specific, which is saying yes to one thing, like going to the bedroom to make out, doesn't mean you said yes to others, like having sex. So spe being specific is very important, and it's very important for us to communicate the sexual needs and be specific in them, right? So I have one last uh, real thought about consent, and that is some people think that getting consent is, like, anti-sexy. Yeah, I don't know if that's a word. You get my point. But that's not the case, right? Consent doesn't have to be clinical. It doesn't have to be sterile. It doesn't have to be, I am about to put my blank in blank, are you okay with that, okay? There are totally ways to make sure consent is there and continually there as you go about your, your engagement. And it's stuff that, it's all about how you say it, right? I mean, you can say something like, ooh, baby, do you like that? Ooh, do you want more? Stuff like that. It's all about phrasing. And then, oh, one other thing. So you also should continually be checking for consent within your, your play. So if, if it's something that you particularly haven't done or it's not a regular thing, 
that's where you can use that kind of sexy mode to check for consent before you do something, even if you're in the midst of the act. Like, again, it doesn't have to be sterile. It doesn't have to be cold. It can add to the, to the heat of the encounter. It's just about understanding how to do so. So, yeah, consent is one of the biggest things. I mean, all these things we're talking about today are pretty big and pretty important. But I think consent is very big, kind of a cornerstone to everything else. Because, yeah, you should punch your local rapist. And if you know somebody who has engaged in that kind of behavior, I, I'm... A pretty big believer in shunning them from communities where they might victimize other people. And I'm looking at you, left. <laughs> I've had some issues with some groups that I've been involved in that did not have specific sexual harassment policies in place and therefore were a haven for predator type, type people. And it came back and bit that group on the ass. And I am happy to be aware of the fact that the only reason they currently have mechanisms in place to combat that type of thing was due to a lot of extensive effort by me and one other person. So even though I'm not involved with that group anymore, I have a legacy of providing a safe space to all my comrades involved with it, who I want to make clear, nobody involved in that group now are our predators and such. This all happened years ago, but so yeah, consent's important. So let's talk about sex positivity. What is sex positivity? I think that's another thing that we're all getting better at understanding as we've gone on into the new century, millennium. I don't know. This is one of those I should have probably wrote a script if I wanted to be specific, but so let's talk about sex positivity. I think this article by Healthline, or on Healthline, does a pretty good job summing it up. So, from Healthline.com, titled, What Does It Actually Mean to Be Sex Positive? The article was published on September 3rd, 2020, by Gabrielle Castle. Quote, Most broadly, sex positivity says that sex can be a positive thing in a person's life. More than just that, though, says Texas-based sex educator Goody Howard, sex positivity is the idea that people should have the space to embody, explore, and learn about their sexuality and gender without judgment or shame. It involves being non-judgmental and respectful regarding the diversity of sexuality and gender expressions as long as there is consent, says trauma-focused therapist and sexuality educator Ada Manderley. LCSW, adding that sex positivity promotes a specific set of actions. Above all else, sex positivity values consent, communication, education that allows people to make informed choices about their bodies, and pleasure. So, obviously, I've said it before on this show, uh, the show and myself are very sex positive. I think sex is a amazing, fun acts that we can do both within the confines of a relationship or as, as a throwaway thing. One night stands, there's nothing wrong with. If I find somebody that I would like to engage with and they would like to engage with me, then there's nothing wrong if that is the only point our paths cross. Because, like, it's... To say otherwise is shaming the whole concept of sex positivity, and it doesn't really work. On the subject of shaming and sex positivity, it has to be mentioned and briefly talked about. There's a few subjects in here that I really just want to briefly touch on because I don't feel go I don't feel right going too far in depth without a representative of that community. And one of those subjects is slut shaming. So I think we all know that there's this dichotomy of when of how we perceive women in America, and it's the whole uh, virgin whore dichotomy, where if a woman is putting out, she is a whore and a slut, but if she's not putting out, she's frigid and teasing people, or however you want to phrase it, and that's, that's fucked up. We, we don't do that here. We shouldn't do it in this country. So, Let's talk a little about slut, slut shaming and what it is. So from a 
study that I found published by the National Institute of Health entitled Slut Shaming in Adolescence, a Violence Against Girls and Its Impact on Their Health by Margot Gabriel and Fabian Glowax. I don't know. It's a Polish name, so there's too many letters. I, I don't know. G-L-O-W-A-C-Z. I should probably look that one up. Anyway, quote, Slut-shaming is defined as the stigmatization of an individual based on his or her appearance, sexual availability, and actual perceived sexual behavior. It can take place in physical or virtual spaces. The present study questions the impact of this form of sexism in virtual spaces on girls and interrogates the interaction between the values that girls integrate through their life experiences, especially in the family sphere, and slut-shaming victimization. So again... Slut-shaming ties into the sex positivity thing. People who are sex positive should never be shaming anybody for having sex that is consensual between adults. And it shouldn't matter what that type of sex is, whether it's vanilla or a bit more kinky. At the end of the day, again, if it's between two consenting adults, it is nobody's business what the hell you're doing. And the whole concept of slut-shaming ties really heavy into the patriarchy, and into the puritanical values that this country was founded on that are obsolete and outdated. Again, I'd like to talk more on this, but I'm going to wait until I have somebody of that community who is willing to speak about it, and we'll probably do an episode about that, among other things having to do with women's issues and such. may even tie it into the, to the road decisions and stuff, but moving on because this is something I can speak with some authority on. So another form of sexual shaming that we see a lot in America is kink shaming. So what is kink? Kink is, I did not actually get a definition for this, but kink is non-vanilla sex. Kink can be BDSM, it can be role play, it could be play with poop or pee, um, whatever. Like, as long as it's between consenting adults, then I I don't judge. Like, something may not be for me, may not be my cup of tea, but that doesn't mean there's not value toward it. Taylor Swift is a great example. I do not particularly like Taylor Swift's music. I've got nothing against her. It's just not the type of music that I want to listen to. But I think Taylor Swift is a talented artist and is making good stuff, but it's just not for me. So kind of extrapolate that to kink, right? So let's talk about how kink can actually can actually be very healing for victims of sexual violence. And this is primarily the subject that brought up the content warning. Although I do think I'm going to start doing content warnings before all episodes, but this one was one that I felt very specific about, particularly being a victim of sexual violence myself, and thinking about how I would react if somebody just in the middle of a podcast was like, oh yeah, hey, by the way, I'm gonna trigger you. So so yeah, before we get too in-depth in this, if you if you're a victim and you think this might be something that unbalances your mental health, then I suggest you just skip this part, and I wish you the best in your recovery from that, and I want you to know from the bottom of my heart that you did not deserve that. And I'm partially talking to you guys, and I'm partially talking to the little kid in me. So, let's go ahead and get into this article of how kink can help sexual assault victims regain their autonomy. So, this article is from Vice, our good comrades over there. It was right below an article of the best outfits to burn down a police precinct in. (laughs) BDSM can provide profound healing experiences, published on August 29, 2017. Quote, BDSM, which stands for Bondage, Dominance, Submission, and Masochism, and involves bringing power, pain, and release into a sexual experience, can be therapeutic even if you're not in the porn industry. As S. Nicole Lane wrote in an essay for 
Hello Giggles, some individuals such as herself who've experienced sexual assault discover BDSM as an essential part of their healing process, a means to reclaim their bodily autonomy, rebuild trust, and treat their PTSD in a controlled environment that's similar to yogic or meditation-based sessions. For some kinksters, like Instagram user Mommy I Need This, who runs a popular ABDL, Adult Baby Diaper Lover account, fetish roleplay can create a controlled environment where it's safe to revisit, recreate, or rewrite memories of trauma. Growing up surrounded by nothing but abuse, I was very closed off as a child. I can only speak on behalf of myself, but this lifestyle allows me to heal, she tells me. End quote. So... I don't know how much I really want to like go in depth on this, but I have found that same thing is true for me. I am not I'm I'm a dom. I I like having the power and the sexual dynamic and it definitely helps me feel more like I'm in control of not only the particular encounter that I'm in, but also overall that I I am autonomous. I didn't deserve what happened to me, and that's a way for me to to reclaim my own space when it comes to to sex. And I found it very helpful over the years. And I've noticed that the partners that I can engage in that type of of sex are the ones that I tend to be able to get emotionally deeper toward and more connected with. Because I can't engage in that type of behavior with somebody I don't trust or I don't feel safe with. And that's a big part for victims of SA as they become adults is having that feeling of safety robbed when you're a child. It's really hard to find that again. And some of us find it by power dynamics such as mine. Others refind it by by being promiscuous and that's their choice i support it at the end of the day like so many other things it's nobody's business how we go about it but the idea that kink is bad or certain types of kink is okay and certain types aren't that's to me really reactionary because again we have studies like these that are studies and stuff that show how therapeutic kink can be for our sexual health and so I just think it really bears mentioning that part of sex positivity going along with not shaming people for simply having sex is not shaming people for the type of sex they enjoy. So, wow. That took a lot out of me emotionally. Um, I may need a good cry after this. I'm glad that I have an EMDR session at the end of the week, and we'll probably be talking about this. So... I've got a few other things to throw in here, and then we are going to call it. Another subject that I'm briefly going to touch on, but will not do a full segment on it because I want to do a whole episode about it, are sex workers. Sex workers are workers. Sex workers do not sell their body any more than any other type of worker. Just because they sell their body to do sexual acts does not mean that it is any different from somebody who sells their body to go dig a ditch or sling burgers or whatever. So it's really important to me as a leftist and as a sex-positive individual that we understand that sex workers are providing a service. To me, I feel, I don't know, but I feel like sex workers provide a very vital service because there are there are people who potentially may turn to bad things who utilize sex workers to get out certain urges so that they're not not making the rest of the world's problem, you know. Um and sometimes we just need that connection, that brief momentary connection. It doesn't, sometimes we don't have the ability or the time or the spoons to engage in a more traditional relationship, but we all have those urges. Well, most of us have those urges. Again, shout out to my ace comrades. Most of us have those urges and, um, and need to be able to 
to work through them. And if you don't have the emotional ability, for example, to maintain a healthy relationship, but you're still horny, it may just be better for you to engage with the sex worker than potentially doing emotional harm to your potential partner. So I feel very strongly that sex workers are work, that they need to be unionized, they need to be protected, we need to acknowledge it on a both state and national level. We need to do whatever we can to protect these, these important components of a functioning society. There's a reason that sex work is one of the oldest types of work that exists, right? So, again, we'll, we'll come back more into that. I know there's a debate on the left as to whether or not sex work is an overall good for the revolution or overall bad, personally. I fall for the good, but yeah, we'll we'll go more in depth with that with a sex worker, and we'll actually talk a bit about that. So, sex workers, um, want to talk about that? And the last thing that I wanted, the last thing that I wanted to touch on was that sex can be a spiritual practice, and it can also be non-spiritual. And it's all about the frame of mind you engage in. And if you're engaging and you're not more in a spiritual frame of mind and just want to get your rocks off, more power to you. Again, that's sex positivity. Not all sex has to be deep and meaningful. But sometimes it is. And sometimes it's really cool to view sex through the lens of a more spiritual, emotional thing, particularly when engaging with regular partners. So, to talk a bit about that, I'm going to quote an article from Psycholog- Psychologically, Psychology Today by Larry Culliford and titled Sex and Spirituality, and it was posted on August 2nd, 2015. Let's see. Okay, quote. The act of sexual love should, by its very nature, be joyous, unconstrained, alive, leisurely, inventive, and full of special delight, which lovers have learned by experience to create for one another. This quote is from Cistercian monk and Roman Catholic priest Thomas Merton from his book Love and Living. Writing about uninhabited erotic love between married people, he continues, Properly understood, sexual union is an expression of deep personal love and a means to the deepening, perfecting, and sanctifying of that love. He is saying that when pure sexual love can take on a quality that is sacred. So, the link between sex and spirituality is strong. Think of sex and nature. Procreation, fecundity, the diversity of plants and animal life. Here is a clue that great life force, the relentless drive to creation, has a universal spiritual quality. The sexual drive to reproduction in humans is called libido, a word for which also translates as life force. So, that is, end quote, so that is from kind of a more Christian centric point of view, but I think we're all aware that many religions all over the world acknowledge the spiritual elements of sex, whether that's the Karma Sutra or uh, fertility rites in Africa or indigenous America or the weird-ass bedding ceremonies that were in Europe in the Middle Ages, stuff like that. Sex can be a very spiritual thing sex can also be less spiritual sex can be can be great when it's less spiritual personally i like it even more when it's got that emotional element under it again no problem if you if you don't have that element but for me personally i'm i'm a big fan of it particularly when incorporating elements of kink the Emotional availability and openness that comes with kink makes utilizing sex as a spiritual practice that much easier. And I think that's all we need to say on that subject so that I'm not just sitting here describing my sex life. I don't know how good radio that would make and or would Anchor kick me off for that. I'm kind of wondering if I'm going to be able to even properly title this episode or if it's just going <laughs> to just going to get flagged in my distribution network, but but yeah. So, that's that's sex. That is a few things that I wanted to touch on cuz I had work canceled today and I figured I might as well make a use on continuing to create content. So, yeah. Uh oh yeah, kids. So, 
if you need to talk to a kid about sex, and not obviously a small child, but you know, a teenager, I do feel strongly that we can start talking to our kids about sex in age-appropriate terms when they're pretty young. Obviously, you're not talking about sex when you tell your five-year-old that, you know, they don't have to hug someone if they don't want to. That's teaching about consent while keeping it age-appropriate. There's a lot of opportunities to teach, particularly about consent, that are age-appropriate. Obviously, a lot of these subjects are probably more appropriate for a later age. But when you get to that point, just kind of go over this stuff. And most important, remember that sex is not a bad thing. And how you present it to your offspring is going to form a core view on how they view sexual engagements and such. So if you come at it with a non-judgmental, understanding, kind way, it honestly helps a lot with the awkwardness and it will help your kids have, you know, good sexual health as they go into adulthood and help to make our community's sexual health that much better. So that is all I really have to say on the matter. I think after all that, I deserve to roll over and have a cigarette. So <laughs> thanks for listening to Red Leg Revolution. You can find us on social media at Red Leg Revolution on Facebook and YouTube, Red Leg Pod on Twitter. I think I may have an Instagram that I forget to update. Uh, if you want to support the show, you can do that through Anchor FM, become a one-time or monthly subscri- uh, donor, or we do have a Patreon that I have been doing a lot better about putting content on. So that's at Red Leg Pod. So yeah, thanks for listening. I hope that everybody's feeling good, and yeah, our only hope is each other. Fuck each other with consent. Very, very strong consent. This has been a production of 419 Media.